bird. It's a plane. No, it's a VTOL. And I'm pretty sure a fish is flying it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's here. It's finally here. This is the 500th episode of Amelia's Weekly Fish Fry Podcast on eejournal.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Amelia Dalton, host of this here podcast, and I am super, super excited to announce that the one and only David Mayman is joining me for this momentous occasion. You've heard of David Mayman, right? He's a pilot, an entrepreneur of great renown, the founder of Jetpack Aviation, Yes, that was him flying around the Statue of Liberty on the very first FAA-endorsed jetpack. And on top of all of this, he is the CEO of Mayman Aviation, which is building the world's fastest, smallest, and most powerful VTOL air utility vehicle, which will change aviation forever. So... Why did I ask David to be on my 500th episode? Well, I have been fascinated by aviation my whole life. I guess being named after a famous aviatrix will do that to you. But also, my father was a helicopter mechanic most of my childhood. My family and I actually lived in Esfahan, Iran, at the Bell Helicopter Base from June of 1977 until January of 1979. Later on, my dad was one of the mechanics for CareFlight in Reno, Nevada. I got such a kick out of visiting him at work and hearing the whirl of those props. But you know, it was something more than that. I can see that now. My dad was helping the doctors and nurses save lives by fixing those helicopters. The pride he had when he suited up to go to work was incredible to see. So, back to the episode. When I first researched the Speeder VTOL from Mainman Aerospace, I was enthralled. It rocked my world. This kind of technology could disrupt aviation forever. But not just aviation. The impact that these kind of vertical takeoff and landing vehicles could have on society at large is immeasurable. I immediately thought of my friend Dave, who heroically fought forest fires year after year. Or my friend Neil, who was an EMT, riding along in helicopters all day in Hawaii. But mostly I thought of my dad, because he would have loved this interview, this topic, this feat of aviation engineering, most of all. So, without further ado, please welcome the man, the myth, the legend, David Mayman to Fish Fry. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Amelia. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Okay, so first off, for my audience who may not know, what is Mayman Aerospace all about? We build the world's fastest and smallest vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So if you think of a drone, which most people would think of like a DJI drone, a little thing that flies along, they may do 50 or 60 miles an hour, something like that. We build a, an aircraft that can actually do over 500 miles an hour. 
And it's about the size of a motorcycle. It's something that you could either ride on or it could carry cargo. It's what we term as optionally piloted, but it's incredibly quick and very, very small. It can carry about 600 pounds, three or four good-sized people. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the motivation to create your air utility vehicles. Have you always been interested in these types of flying machines? Yeah, that's going back a little ways now, sort of uh, some history on that. I'm a commercial pilot, although I've never flown commercially for an airline or anything. I've just been fascinated all of my life, particularly with vertical takeoff and landing, you know, VTOL operations. So I learned to fly uh, helicopters a while back. And helicopters are great, but they're still pretty big and they're relatively limited in terms of speed. Most people think about helicopters as being fast, but they top out at about 120 to 140 miles an hour for some very good physics reasons. So it's always been something that I've been interested in and never had enough money to do anything about. I actually founded and ran the equivalent to Yelp in Australia. And uh, when I sold out of that, I eventually had some funds to do something about this and, and follow my dream, which is to build the world's smallest personal VTOL aircraft. And that started off being literally a jetpack. So it's an aircraft that you can strap on your back. If you wanted to, you walk outside or step out of your car, put it on from your trunk, and you can take off like a helicopter, fly around for about 10 minutes really quickly. In the case of a jetpack, maybe 120 miles an hour, and then come back and land. That's how the whole thing started about mm, 10, 12 years ago. Started working with the military actually here in the US and they loved it, but they wanted something that could fly even further, even faster, could be fully automated. And that's where the current aircraft that we're working on, which we call the Speeder, that's where that was born. So let's talk about the Speeder too. Now, before we get into the details, can you talk to me a little bit about the evolution of this vehicle and more information about the prototype. You've been working on these types of vehicles for over a decade, right? And were there two different prototypes before this current one? Yeah, actually for the jetpacks, which is the backpack mounted system that you can walk around with, there were nine prototypes before I could get that one operating sufficiently well to fly with. And I did a flight around the Statue of Liberty in November 2015. So that was finally the version that actually worked. We'd been in Skunk Works for all that time, came out public in November 2015, created quite a stir. That was nine iterations at probably one per year. So that's like nine years that it took us to get to that point. We were a small team, but as you can imagine, nobody had done this before. We were literally the first group to invent something that you could literally strap on your back, walk around with and fly with. It was jet powered. They had the rocket belt back in the 1960s, but it flew for 22 seconds. That's a fuel emergency on takeoff. We wanted to actually be able to fly around for 10 minutes and get somewhere. So that was nine iterations. We progressed as a company, the jetpacks to the JB 10, 11, 12, and now working on 14. We skipped 13. So there's a lot of iterations there. And with the speeder aircraft, and this is the flying motorcycle, if you like, or air utility vehicle, we're on the third prototype or the third full-scale version of that. We never did subscale. And a lot of companies do that. They build very small versions first because it's cost-effective and you can do it quickly. I made a conscious decision from the beginning that we're building something from scratch that can carry the kind of weights that we're talking about carrying. 
We've been doing that since 2019. I don't know if you've heard of the Y Combinator program in Silicon Valley. We went through that in 2019. And that really helped us find the engineers, you know, find the enthusiastic investors. Some of the investors involved in SpaceX and Tesla got behind us. Yeah, the rest is history. We've flown now three prototypes. Excellent. Let's talk some more about the details of this new speeder. What kind of applications do you think it'd be a perfect fit for? So if you think of initially anywhere that a helicopter is being used, we could probably do it faster and cheaper and more safely. So firefighting, for instance, we can carry water or fire retardant to a fire at probably four times the speed of a helicopter. We can do it in any condition. So whether it's night, whether you can see the horizon, it might be completely cloudy or smoke filled. So it could be in what's called instrument conditions. We can operate it from a forward base. So the firefighters can actually have one of these with them in a trailer that's connected to their fire truck or any vehicle, and they can deploy it very quickly from where they are. Another example would be getting equipment or parts to offshore oil rigs, where helicopters are pretty exclusively used now, and it can cost literally tens of thousands of dollars in an emergency case to send out a twin-engine helicopter 40, 50 miles to drop off a part that might only weigh 100 pounds. We can do that at four times the flight speed, probably one-tenth the cost, and the aircraft is ready to go. It does not need a pilot. So you get rid of all of the pilot training and most of the maintenance requirements. Helicopters have extraordinarily complex transmissions and gearbox systems. We don't have any of that. That's an example use cases on the civilian side. On the military side, we have a lot of interest from each of the branches of the military for ultra-rapid cargo delivery. So you imagine you're on the front line and you need a spare part for equipment, you need medical supplies, you need blood. You can send in one of our aircraft, again, three or four times the speed of a helicopter, does not need a crew. So if it did get shot down, it's like a tenth the cost of a helicopter and there's no crew on board. And you can swarm them. So instead of sending one helicopter in, you could send 10 or 15 of our speeder aircraft each one could carry up to 600 pounds. And even if one gets shot down, the other nine get there. Another example in the military is actually rescuing an injured person. At the moment, very often it's too dangerous to pull somebody out by road. So they send in a Black Hawk helicopter. You're putting the life of the crew at risk. They're an easy and very slow, sort of cumbersome target. A speeder can go in there autonomously land. Again, it could swarm in if there's a mass casualty event can be loaded up with the injured personnel and can be flown out very rapidly to an aid station. That gives you some idea of the use cases, but it's really open-ended. You imagine anything that needs to be transported extremely rapidly up to 600, 700, 800 miles from a very small takeoff and landing area. That's fantastic. Now, let's talk about the future of VTOL vehicles. When or if do you think they will become more mainstream? You know, let me start by saying I'm absolutely sure that they will. I guess I'm a little more cautious than some industry commentators about how quickly they're going to be adopted into our airspace systems. That's for several reasons. We need to have great faith in them separating themselves, so removing air traffic control. Psychologically, people need to feel comfortable in the end in flying aircraft that may not have a pilot. You know, people have enough trouble at the moment getting into helicopters or aircraft that have pilots. In the end, for this to work very well in a sort of a hub-and-spoke environment where these aircraft can fly pretty much anywhere point-to-point, point, you probably need to do it without a pilot to make it truly useful and remove all the restrictions. 
That I don't think is going to happen in the next five years. The other major barrier to a lot of the aspirations that companies have is that the energy density of batteries. So we all want to go electric. We use turbine power at the moment, which means diesel or any kind of heavy fuel, kerosene, et cetera. The only reason we do that is you just cannot extract the kind of power that you need to out of any kind of electric source, whether it's hydrogen batteries or what have you. And we probably won't be able to for 10 or 20 years. That's the truth. So the companies that are envisaging long or even mid-range e-VTOL, electric VTOL operations at relatively high speed are going to rely on a step change, a revolution in battery power. And that could put us out, frankly, 10, 15 years before we see that happening. So let's circle back to jetpack aviation just a bit. Where do you see that type of technology evolving in the future? Again, in the end, there's no doubt that we'll end up with electric, but the customers that we have already and the customers that are interested in our technology are just not willing to wait for electric propulsion. So we are using turbine propulsion now. It's incredible. It means that you can fly so fast and with such a heavy payload from such a small aircraft. When we can go electric, we will go electric. All of our flight controller systems, our thrust vectoring technology, our engine gimbling technology will hold true for electric propulsion just as much as it does hydrocarbon propulsion. In the future, it is possible that we'll enter the urban air mobility market. We're already in the AAM, the advanced aerial mobility market. So in the future, the concept of moving around a city is something that I find very, very intriguing. I think it does need to be electric. I think it needs to be quiet. Obviously, it needs to be fully certified and very, very safe. And I'd like to be a participant in that space, but I see it as definitely second phase to the work that we're doing now. First phase is cargo or in sort of do or die use cases in the military where you have to get somebody out to save their life and that you'll use any kind of aircraft you can that won't risk other lives. That's absolutely fantastic. All right, David, it is time for your off-the-cuff question. Now, since you haven't been on my show yet, You get the standard off the cuff. So if you could have one meal right now, David, it doesn't matter if it's on the other side of the planet, the restaurant's closed, you need a passport to get there, what would you have? Tiramisu. I don't know where that came from, but that's it. I love it. That sounds absolutely fantastic right now. It's not really a meal, but if you maybe if you have more than one of them, let's make it a meal. That sounds good. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Amelia. Really appreciate it too. If you can't tell, I've had a lot of fun over the last 500 episodes. Some of the most fun I've had was interviewing people at conferences. I think my all-time record was 32 interviews recorded over four days at the Design Automation Conference a couple years ago. At DAC 2015, I was big pregnant, like seven months along or so. And seeing the faces of my interviewees when I would see them for the first time in a year or more was so great. It was universally about the same. Their eyes would get all big and they would say, oh, you're pregnant or something like that. You know, sometimes I'm the only podcaster in the room. That was the case with the Embedded Tech Trends Conference held by Vita Technologies. One year, because the conference location was tight on space, 
I did all of my interviews from an old style phone booth. Yes, it was small. It could comfortably fit two people, but I think I had up to four at some points. But let me tell you, it was great for audio quality. <laughs> Another of my favorite conferences was the MEMS Executive Congress. I liked this conference every year for two reasons. First and foremost, the content was absolutely intriguing. Every speech or session was about how MEMS could change the world. The second reason why I loved this conference was the technology showcase. Now, each year they would have a contest for various companies that wanted to highlight their new MEMS-based product. Each group would get between five and 10 minutes, I think, to pitch their idea before this huge conference of MEMS executives and venture capitalists. And then they would set up their tables near the lunchroom to answer questions about their technology. At the end of the conference, everyone in attendance would vote for their favorite design slash product, and that team would win a variety of cool prizes. Think kind of Shark Tank for MEMS devices. So this is what I would do. Near the end of the initial pitch session, I would start quietly packing up my stuff, trying not to make too much of a bother. I would stash my laptop bag under the table, then grab my phone, mic case, mic, and business cards. Then I would bolt to the lunchroom, and I would eat as fast as I possibly could which was kind of sad because the food at this conference was always so good. Anyway, after wolfing down my food, I would walk fast, not run in some cases, to the lineup of tables with the technology showcase entrance. Some of them were excited to talk to me. Some of them were a bit scared to talk to me, but did anyway. And some of them outright said no. <laughs> but for the most part, these were some of the coolest interviews that I have ever done here at EE Journal. And what's funny is that without fail, a couple years down the road, I'd look at a catalog or a, that magazine thingy in the airline pocket, or maybe see a commercial or web ad, and hey, there's that product I interviewed that guy about at the MEMS Executive Congress Technology Showcase. Imagine that. <laughs> Another part of my fish fry podcast that I absolutely love is my off-the-cuff question. Now, since the beginning, I wanted my podcast to represent the fun of engineering. That engineering doesn't have to be boring. And getting to hear what my speakers did in their free time, from folk dancing, cross-country bike rides, building battle bots, and more, was enlightening. Engineers are such a crazy, diverse, interesting bunch with cool interests and awesome hobbies. And hearing about the ways they interact with the world and their communities was a blessing to me. Now, since COVID, I generally just ask about food because since all of this world upheaval, there is a universal connectivity with food in particular. And hearing all of those answers from my guests from around the world makes me happy. I've also been asked many, many times over the years, 
what is your favorite episode of all time? Well, that's kind of like asking if you've got a favorite kid out of 500. But I did put together a special playlist of my very favorite episodes this week. This collection covers a variety of intriguing topics, including organic printed electronics, advancements in brain-hand communication, autonomous indie cars, the world's most advanced elephant tracking collar, and more. And guess what? You can binge all 10 episodes of this series by clicking the link below the player on this week's fish frying page on eejournal.com or by heading on over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash eejournal. So folks, that's 500 episodes from the beginning way back in 2010. And yes, that was before Apple launched their first standalone mobile podcast app Mm -hmm. to today. I still love what I do. And here's to the next 500. Hey, have you checked out EE Journal on social media yet? Well, you should. You can find us at facebook.com slash EE Journal. If you're into Twitter, you can monitor our tweets at EE Journal TFM. And don't forget, if you would like to follow my personal Twitter account, check out Amelia D. 1978. And hey, if LinkedIn is more your thing... I dig it. You can follow us or me on LinkedIn as well. And we have that YouTube channel I mentioned earlier, youtube.com slash eejournal. Folks, it is chock full of all kinds of techie videos, including our very popular Chalk Talk webcast series hosted by me. And you can subscribe to our EE Journal YouTube channel as well. Also, by clicking the links below the player on this week's Fish Frying page, you can subscribe to this here podcast through Spotify, Podbean, or Apple Podcasts. And remember, if you'd like to further support this podcast, please leave me a review on that podcasting platform of your choice. It really does help. Also, if you'd like any further information about the stories covered in today's show, just head on over to eejournal.com and look for this week's Fish Frying page. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I really mean that. If you know of any cool new technology or heck you just want to chat, shoot me a line at Amelia, that's A-M-E-L-I-A, at eejournal.com. Or post a comment on our forums on eejournal.com. For the week of September 23rd, 2022, I'm Amelia Dalton, and you've been fried.